Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I've always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Hello, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn, and welcome to another episode of Clyburn Chronicles. This month, we recognize Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and the Pacific Islander Heritage Month. It's time for us to reflect on and celebrate the contributions of people of AKNHPI descent to the history and culture of America, from medicine, science, and technology, to literature, sports, and government. The AKA and NHBI community has influenced every aspect of American life. That's why today, in honor of NHBI Heritage Month, I want to have on someone who understands the history of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander communities in America. The challenges that they still face and what we can do to make sure America's greatness is accessible and affordable for all. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest, Ambassador Catherine Ty. I'm pleased to welcome her and to tell you a little bit about her. As trade representative, Ambassador Ty acts as the principal trade advisor, negotiator, and spokesperson on United States trade policy. Prior to her nomination by President Biden and rare unanimous confirmation by the Senate, Ambassador Ties spent many years in public service, focusing on trade-related matters. As trade representative, Ambassador Ties has been taxed by President Biden to ensure workers are at the center of the United States trade agenda. And she is focused on creating equitable trade policy that supports individuals and communities that have been historically excluded from the benefits of trade. She is the first Asian American and the first woman of color to serve as United States trade representative. Ambassador Ty understands 
perhaps better than anyone else, how we can use the levers of trade to create a more equitable economy. Ambassador Ty, thank you so much for joining me today. As I mentioned earlier, this month is Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Island Heritage Month. You are the first Asian American and first woman of color to occupy this post. Can you talk about why this month is especially important to you as well as for our country? Well, thank you so much, Mr. Clyburn. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Um, I find this month of May to be really important for me as a very proud member of the Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander community. Um, it's also important to me because uh, as a member of President Biden's cabinet, uh, I do represent this community within this administration. And President Biden is so proud about having his administration look like America. And I just want to emphasize that it is important for us to reflect what America looks like so that when our fellow Americans look at the leadership in our government, that they can also see themselves and see the people that they grew up with and that they went to school with. Um, it is also really important from a substantive standpoint too. When we are around that cabinet table, when we are having interagency deliberations, members of the different communities within the United States will see things with different eyes. We all are experiencing our American citizenship and our American participation in different ways. And that means we have different perspectives and we have different blind spots. So when you have an administration and a cabinet that looks like America, it also means that when you are making decisions, you are helping to um, cover for each other's blind spots and you are helping to make sure that the conversation is sensitive and responsive to the different communities in America. And of course, I also represent the Biden administration to our community. And this month is an opportunity for me to travel coast to coast, to do a lot of in-person outreach with Asian American communities uh, from uh, New York and Washington, DC to Phoenix and LA. Um, and uh, it's fun. It really, um, I find to be really fulfilling uh, but it's also really important to my work, too, to stay connected with the people who I feel like I'm here to represent. Well, thank you very much for that. You know, I uh, know that many of my listeners are very familiar uh, with the concept of trade, but may not be familiar with the role of the U.S.C.'s trade ambassador. Can you take a few minutes to explain to them exactly uh, what that role is? Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, when the United States engages with the rest of the world, obviously there's a lot that we do in the foreign policy space, in the national security areas, but uh, we, like every other country, also has to have an international economic agenda and policy. 
and there is a there is a worldwide architecture to this type of engagement. The World Trade Organization, the OECD, the Organization for Economic uh, Cooperation and Development, uh, the G20, the G7. Um, as the United States Trade Representative, I'm the person who shows up to represent the interests of the United States in these economic negotiations, in the economic discussions, and sometimes the economic um, dispute resolution forums. Um, so um, that is a lot of what the U.S. Trade Representative does, and it's sort of self-explanatory in the name itself. I show up around the world to represent in trade conversations the interests of the United States and our workers and our businesses, small and large. Well, you know, today uh, you and I are a bit antsy about what's going on here in Washington related to this so-called debt ceiling. And uh, a lot of people uh, don't quite understand what that means. And you mentioned in that uh, your uh, talk just a minute ago, uh, D7. Now, we see a lot about D7. I've heard a lot about it already this morning. And uh, the president is talking about postponing, uh, taking his trip there in order to get this, uh, uh, this, this debt ceiling thing settled. Tell my listeners exactly what D7 seven me. Wonderful. Yes. So uh, G7 stands for, I think, Group of Seven. And it's uh, seven countries, uh, I think some of the seven most advanced economies in the world. And this will be a quiz for me to see if I can uh, name the seven. <laughs> uh, I know that there are three Europeans. It's France, Germany, and Italy. It's the three biggest economies in Europe. And of course, uh, where they are involved, often the they're because they're members of the European Union. The European Union is sometimes at the table too. Um, there's also uh, the United States and Canada, the United Kingdom. I think I'm up to six now. And the seventh uh, member of the G7 is Japan. Um, the president, in terms of his meeting with the G7, I think exactly in one week. The G7 leaders are supposed to be meeting in Japan. Um, earlier this year, the G7 foreign ministers met. I think I was just talking to my friend, uh, Secretary Tom Vilsack at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and he just went to Japan for the G7 agriculture ministers meeting. And of course, I participate in the G7 trade ministers conversation, which will happen later this year, also hosted in Japan. So it's an important forum for seven countries um, who are different, but who have a lot of shared interests from a foreign policy, economic policy standpoint to get together to identify our priorities and also figure out how we can most effectively work together to advance a positive vision for how we would like to participate with the rest of the world. Well, that's great. I, I, I'm even I understand that explanation, so I know my listeners are very pleased to hear it. You know, when I first came to Washington, and you would hear these acronyms and this sort of uh, uh, D20, D7, and you never knew exactly what all that was about. And so I like my listeners to really get a good feel uh, for what it is you're talking about here 
in Washington. Now, uh, you mentioned, as I did earlier, uh, that you have decided to make uh, workers, the policy around work, a centerpiece of what you do uh, with your duties and responsibilities uh, in this capacity. Uh, tell my listeners exactly what that means, workers and small businesses, uh, as it relates to your uh, duties and responsibilities. Certainly. When you are the representative for the entire United States in trade, one of the most important things for me to remember is that it's in the name. You're representing the entire United States. You're not just representing the biggest economic stakeholders who are the most sophisticated, have the most resources, and uh, all have Washington lobbyists who know how to find us uh, and can have us on speed dial. Where we really need to work harder and where President Biden has really highlighted the need is to make sure that when we are showing up in trade conversations that we remember, we also represent the smalls, small businesses. We also represent individual people who are workers in our economy. And we are representing producers um, and we are representing communities. So um, when I first started here in uh, early 2021, I asked a sister agency in an independent agency called the United States International Trade Commission to undertake a study to look at what have been the distributional impacts of our trade policies over the past decades. We know that our trade policies are very powerful. They have created a lot of prosperity. Do you look at the gross domestic product, the GDP numbers, it's kind of like the income numbers for our country. They have grown steadily over the past couple decades. But what we don't really know, which is why we ask the question is, how well have our trade policies served individual communities, specific regions, women versus men, people of color, different communities amongst the peoples of, of color, and uh, the International Trade Commission um, returned to me a report last year. Uh, the first finding was that, you know, we really haven't been collecting the kind of data. We haven't really been asking the types of questions that would allow for a very granular, very detailed response to the set of questions that we posed. But based on the data that we have collected, based on the studies that people have done, what we see is that our trade policies, while overall creating more prosperity, have actually been really uneven in the benefits that they've produced for different communities, for different regions, for the smalls versus the bigs, for women versus men, for communities of color versus uh, others. So what that told us is that we need to redouble our efforts to make sure that when we are formulating our trade policies, when we are deciding what goals to pursue in our trade negotiations, that we should be working harder to bring historically underrepresented or unrepresented voices to the table, to ask them what's in your interest and how can we reflect that in how we advance trade policy so that we can have the hope of creating trade policies 
that put our people at the center, that are going to benefit more people, because we've seen a widening inequality economically within our own country. And um, there must be a role that trade can play to produce more equitable outcomes. And so when we talk about a worker-centered trade policy, it's to remind ourselves that our policies in the past have not put wor workers at the center and that we really need to be investing more in ourselves and remembering that our economy is about opportunities for our people. Just so our listeners will know uh, that you are one, as we say down south, that walks the walk, not just talk to talk, you have visited a little uh, town uh, in South Carolina, Blacksburg, uh, and uh, as a little manufacturing, uh, textile manufacturing plant there. Uh, recently, you went to a bison plant or a ranch uh, in Colorado. Uh, you have made it a goal during your tenure to match all international travel uh, with travel to small businesses and communities here in America. Uh, can you uh, share just a uh, moment with my listeners exactly how you've done that with these two instances? How do you make bisons work uh, internationally? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, but I would be happy to. Um, you know, carrying this consciousness that uh, our economy is really diverse um, and vibrant, uh, but that we could be doing more, uh, especially for the smaller communities, smaller producers, uh, and remembering our workers all the time. Um, one of the things I wanted to do as U.S. Trade Representative was to make sure that I'm not just traveling all around the world, but that I'm really getting to know better the United States itself. And... Um, Mr. Congressman, here I would just like to let you know that you've been an inspiration. I know that your job is really focused up here in Washington, D.C., um, in the halls of Congress, uh, in the House of Representatives, but that in order to do your job well, you spend as much time as you possibly can back home in South Carolina, because those are the people in the communities that you represent. And so that's the spirit that I wanted to bring to this job of being United States Trade Representative. When I go off and I fly around to places like Brussels and Geneva and Tokyo and Mexico City, that's kind of like the job that you do in the halls of Congress. But in order to do my job well, I take as inspiration that I need to be pushing myself out of my office in Washington, D.C., getting to know the different parts of the United States, getting to know the textile manufacturers, the workers there, the producers there, the owners, going out to Colorado and the small bison ranch and hearing about um, these real people's aspirations and stretch my team's efforts and our creativity to figure out what more we can do in the trade conversation to represent the interests of these great Americans and to bring more opportunities to them. Well, thank you very much for that. It's very important for uh, people to really understand that if there's a bison rat, whether it's in Colorado or rural South Carolina, that I've seen uh, a bison rat uh, in Kershaw <laughs> County, 
and South Carolina. Uh, they don't plan to eat uh, all of those bisons. Uh, they plan uh, to trade uh, internationally uh, in many instances with them. And it's good for them to know uh, that somebody like you uh, will be keeping their efforts in mind as you travel around the country and you can visit with them and let them know how it is that they can uh, be a part of this international community. So thank you very much for that. Now, you gave a speech uh, uh, not long ago, I think it was last week, uh, at the University of Southern California. In it, you talked about how America is a community of communities, how America's diversity is core to our identity and your experience as an Asian American leader. Can you talk a little bit about that speech and what it meant to you? Yes. I think that um, when you have a job where your title is United States Trade Representative, you think a lot about what America means. And uh, in my career, certainly when I was serving in the House on the Ways and Means Committee for the members of the Ways and Means Committee as the uh, Trade Council, and now that I'm in this job, what I really appreciate is uh, what an incredible country we are, um, that we have always held up the promise of acceptance and inclusion and equality, how deeply imperfect our country has been and not living up to that promise, but what courage we have had to continue to struggle to realize the promise of the idea of this country. President Biden says something, there's a story he likes to tell, and I've heard it so many times now, but every time I hear it, uh, I still have that, feel that shiver of inspiration, where he says that a world leader asked him once, tell me about America. How, how do you define America? And President Biden said immediately, this is very easy. I can define America with just one word. And that word is possibility. And I think that for me, as I look at our own administration, as I travel around the United States, it is so clear that the strength of America is in our diversity. The strength of America is in our history of being a land of original inhabitants, of immigrants, of those who came of their own free will, of those who came against their will, uh, and everyone who is here who is struggling to make a more perfect union. And so the speech that I gave at the University of Southern California was kind of a first for me. Um, it was the longest speech I've given. I think that it was maybe over 25 minutes long. I'm not used to being the only voice going on for that long. And uh, it really was about how um, this vision of America being an inclusive one, an evolving one, one that is always striving to become better, more inclusive, more fair, is the vision of America that we are working towards. And it is the thing I want to let you and your readers know that as I travel around the world, it is the thing that really distinguishes us. And it is really the thing that others see as our strength. 
Well, thank you for that. And, you know, when uh, we were talking about uh, this edition of Fibrant Chronicles and your name came up in the discussion, I immediately thought uh, about my coming to Congress uh, back in 1993. I was sworn in January of 1993. And I was fortunate enough to get a seat uh, on what is now the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. We call it Public Works Committee back then. It was an Asian American, Norm Manetta, who took me under his wing. Norm became a great friend. We spent a lot of time together. Our first trip to San Jose, California, uh, was with Norm Manetta. And Norm sent me down one day and shared with me his experiences uh, in that internment chat uh, that he uh, was spent some time in as a child. And so I'm very sensitive uh, to some of the things that are going on in the country today. Uh, and for all the members uh, of the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and as I said, Pacific Island, Islander communities, maybe listening right now, uh, might be concerned about some of the rising anti-Asian sentiment once again in this country. What words of wisdom can you share with them uh, that will allow them uh, to continue play whatever roles they can play uh, in this country's trek uh, toward a more perfect union? Well, it's certainly true that there are very much heightened tensions right now between the United States and um, the second largest economy in the world, now the second most populous country in the world, and that is China in Asia. Um, and I guess in terms of words of wisdom, what I would offer is words really matter. And how we talk about the kinds of challenges that we have geopolitically, economically, as a policy matter, it's really important for us to use our words responsibly. Because we saw during the pandemic how really reckless rhetoric was used and how that had a direct negative and violent impact on the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander communities here in the United States. Reports of violence, race-based violence, skyrocketed in those first years of the pandemic. I think that what I have seen, though, is an incredible resilience in the AA and NHPI communities. I am seeing Asian Americans, Native, Hawaiander, uh, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders stand up for themselves and each other in ways that maybe we haven't as much before. I have seen a real call to action and inspiration. I have seen also a lot of solidarity with our friends in the Black and Hispanic communities, a recognition that um, the struggle for civil rights as fellow Americans is something that we are all involved in. And so 
it is really important for the AN NHPI community and your listeners out there to know, to know in the core of their souls that they belong in America as fellow Americans, that there are Americans in this community and in other communities who will have our backs and whose backs we need to have too. And that, in my own experience, watching the growth and the energy grow in this community, that I have confidence that as hard as things are, as unfair as they are right now, that the work ahead of us is really important and that we are capable of rising to the moment and standing up for ourselves. And to your point about the late, great Normanetta, who is a first in so many things and who is such a wise soul, to take inspiration from him and his story. I think one of the most uh, inspiring stories about Norman, there are so many of them, is that when he was Secretary of Transportation, this was during the this was during 9-11, that uh, he was extremely sensitive to the backlash that was coming for Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, and that he tried to do everything he could to make sure that what happened to his family during World War II wouldn't happen to these communities after 9-11. And so in this moment of uh, rising anti-Asian sentiment, uh, I do keep Norm's memory very, very much alive in my spirit. And Mr. Clyburn, I want to thank you for mentioning him because uh, I think not enough people know about Norm and his story and his legacy, and but he's never been more relevant than he is today. Thank you very much for that. You know, I usually have as my last question to, uh, uh, just to ask for some closing remarks from my guests, but I think uh, you've pretty much said it all. Norm was a good friend, and I, I know that we're up here. We always try to refer to each other, especially on the floor of the house, as my good friend. And most times, we don't really mean it. But uh, Norm and Netta uh, was a friend, not just on the floor of the house, uh, but in uh, his office, my office, in neutral areas, back in his congressional district. I don't know if I ever had Norm in my uh, congressional district, but my congressional district felt Norm. They may not have known it, but they felt it. And when he was Secretary of Transportation, uh, Norm really uh, did right uh, by the people of my congressional district. And I'm so pleased uh, to see you uh, following uh, in that spirit. He was a great spirit, and I, I'll always uh, feel indebted to him. So I want to thank you uh, for being here with us today. Thank you for the contribution you were making uh, to the world order, and I hope uh, that um, my listeners today got a much better feel for what the Office of Trade Representative uh, is all about and uh, who you. Uh, or uh, as a public servant. Now, you may have the last word. 
All I wanted to say was what a privilege it has been to share this time with you today. Well, thank you very much. And to my listeners, thank you. Uh, you have been listening uh, to another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.